And tonight we are continuing our worship in Romans chapter 8. So if you want to turn there, Romans chapter 8. Let's bow our hearts and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the rain. We need the rain. We thank you that people made it here safely, Lord, and in this weather with the wet robes. We thank you for those who came out to minister tonight, that you would empower them by your spirit, give them strength and wisdom. We pray for each and every one of us, Lord, whether we're serving or or here in the congregation or student in the classroom in the education building or uh, the youth center, Lord. Lord, help us all to have open and receptive hearts to your word and to your spirit. Father, we lift up this night to you. We pray that you'll be glorified. I pray for the gift of teaching. And I pray, Father, for a timely word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of tonight's lesson is The Big Picture. And we're using Romans 8, verses 18 through 30, as a platform for tonight's message. So if you want to begin at verse 18, have your finger there for when we start reading. But first, I want to start with a simple question. And the question is, have you ever been so focused on a specific task or issue that you dropped the ball or neglected other things that needed to be done. So focused on a little bitty issue that's not as important as the rest of the day and all of the other things that need to be done. But because of that focus on that task, we miss out on so many other things. Have you been there before? And so I'm not asking for a raise of hands. See, things like this happens when we lose sight of what I like to call the big picture, especially in regarding our big picture of the day in regards to that, or perhaps the big picture of our responsibilities. And we could also lose sight of the big picture in regard to spirituality or spiritually. And tonight in our lesson, we're going to find out what that big picture is. And we're going to find some exhortation or encouragement, some urging and prodding from the scriptures to help us to keep things in perspective. And so we begin with verse 18 and it continues, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, remember back in verses 16 and 17, where it says that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And then it says, and if children, if we're children, then we are also heirs. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So not only are we children of God and that's by spiritual birth as we talked about last week and that happens through faith in Christ, but we are also adopted as sons which speaks to our position as mature or adult sons in the body of Christ 
which makes us eligible to receive the inheritance. Therefore, we are heirs. But notice in 17, it says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So on the way to glory, on the way to glorification for the believer, there's some suffering along the way. And so verse 18 picks up on that. And so that's why it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, of the time that we're living in right now, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So that's why verse 18 continues in that manner. And so with suffering as a backdrop, let's read verses 19 through 21. It says, for the earnest expectation or the intense anticipation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. That's believers. And and this this phrase here eagerly waits means with great care, attention and perseverance. That's what that phrase means. In verse 20, it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him that is God who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. The creation will be delivered from the bondage of decay into the glorious liberty, freedom of the children of God. Now wonder if you've ever had to wait for someone else to get whatever they're going to get before you can get yours. The one instance I can think of is on the airplane, especially on the way off. You have your luggage on the top, in the top compartment, and you have all these people rushing and bumping into you and reaching for their stuff, elbowing you, elbowing you in the ear and head and everything else. And you're just waiting there as patiently as you could in order to to get your luggage. And so you're sticking your head out in the aisle, looking both ways, and you're just looking intently and with anticipation. In that intense look on your face, like, okay, is it my turn now? Should I jump in now? Or if some or is somebody gonna run me over? So that same anticipation that you have, that same focus and determination. That intense anticipation just waiting for your turn. Creation is like that. But of course, the topic is, is more serious in this case. And so creation, which includes the earth, the, the plants and, and, and the animals and so forth, is personified in this lesson. That means that you have things that are not human given human qualities. And so they are expecting this great future as if they're humans. And creation is waiting in hope for believers, for us to receive our glorified bodies and to finally, to finally have everything affected by the curse removed. Because as the scripture tells us, creation itself was also affected by the curse. 
because of Adam's sin. It was subjected to futility. Creation suffers. And so we see this. We see animals attacking animals and we see tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes, all these things. We see sickness and disease and just all these uh, deadly bacteria and viruses going on in the earth. And of course, we see some animals, unfortunately, attacking humans. And so the creation itself was also subjected to futility. That means emptiness, especially as it regards to its uh, to it fulfilling what it's supposed to do. And so there is emptiness to the results of creation's purpose because of sin, because of the curse brought about sin. In Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18, we read then to Adam, he said, and this is God speaking, because you have heeded, you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And so it is not even the earth's fault. And so where it says not willingly that it was subjected to futility, not willingly. That means creation didn't participate in, in this sin. Adam being the federal head of the human race, he messed up. And so creation was subjected to this, to this emptiness. Not now reaching its full potential because of the curse. So curse is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18 in Genesis 3 still. And both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Notice those thorns and thistles came up out of the ground as a result of the curse. And now man has to work hard for his sustenance, for his food. The curse. And I don't want to get into this other study, but I just find it interesting that Jesus, before he was crucified, he had a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus himself took the curse upon himself. He paid the price in order to rectify, to fix whatever Adam messed up. And so what we take from this is that we are not the only ones suffering from the curse or the negative effects of sin. We're not the only ones. And so the application for us is that even when we sin, because we don't want to just talk about Adam, the federal head of the human race. We don't want to just talk about him. But even when we sin, we affect others as well. So it's not just us that we're bringing down. Oftentimes we're bringing down others. We sin at work. We break the law at work. We misrepresent God at work. Now they have to let us go. Now, guess what? They're missing a worker. Now they have to hire somebody else. And in the midst of them looking for someone else to hire, now processes get slowed down. You see that? So not just when we sin does it affect us, but it affects others and other processes as well. When we sin in our families, it affects the household. It's another example. 
And so we pull these applications from what happened to creation when when Adam sinned. And so it was subjected, had to suffer the curse as well. But creation, of course, personified, given human qualities, is eagerly waiting, is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed in glorified bodies. And before the new heaven and new earth that we'll see in Revelation 21 and 1, before that takes place, the earth will be restored in the millennial kingdom, the thousand year kingdom of Christ. When he will visibly, literally reign on earth for a thousand years, we're going to see a restoration of the earth. It's going to look almost like it did in Eden. And when will this kingdom begin? This millennial kingdom, when will it start? Well, first of all, the saints who died before the rapture, And then the saints who were transformed on the way up during the rapture. First of all, they got, we have to come back with Christ in our glorified bodies. In Jude, it says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. That's us. Revelation tells us that when Jesus comes back on his white horse at the end of the tribulation period. For the battle of Armageddon, that we're going to come with him. It tells us that the Antichrist and the false prophet who deceived people and got people to worship the Antichrist, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then the rest of the army there at the battle of Armageddon, they're going to be destroyed quickly. So it's really not much of a battle. Jesus is going to do away with them quickly. And then after that time, as you read in Matthew chapter 25, it talks about Jesus judging the nations. It's after the tribulation period, the judgment of the of the nations separating the sheep and the goats. And so the the people who remain unbelievers after the tribulation will go into the lake of fire, go to hell. And then, of course, the ones who became believers during the tribulation They'll be able to enter into that thousand year kingdom of Christ. And some will go into that kingdom without glorified bodies because some will make it through alive in their non-glorified bodies. But then you have some tribulation saints. And of course, you have the, the church and the Old Testament saying we'll rule and reign with Christ in glorified bodies for a thousand years. And during that period, Satan is going to be locked up. And it doesn't take God to lock him up. As a matter of fact, it says that an angel, another angel will lock up Satan for a thousand years. And he won't be loosed again, it says, until the thousand year reign of Christ is over. And then after that, he'll be cast into the lake of fire and join the Antichrist and that false prophet. And so the creation is waiting for the sons of God, for believers to come back with Christ and glorify bodies. And rule and reign with him on the earth. Because during that time. There's going to be worldwide righteousness and peace on the earth. And you can turn with me real quick to. Isaiah chapter 11. And we're going to get a little glimpse. Of what it's going to look like during the thousand year reign of Christ. That we call the millennial kingdom. 
It's going to be, again, worldwide righteousness and peace. See, the rapture, I know some people get this confused. The rapture, Jesus comes for the church. We meet him in the air. He does not touch down. But the second coming, we believe, comes after the tribulation period. It's a seven-year period. That 70th week, that last seven-year period prophesied by Daniel, the prophet. So after that seven-week period, tribulation period, then you have what we call the second coming when he is, he is visibly seen coming back and he actually touches down. So rapture and second coming, those are two separate events. So in the second coming, when he comes back as the lion of the tribe of Judah, when he comes back as the conquering king, we'll see the state of the earth during this time. Isaiah 11 verses 6 through 9, it says the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. Parents will not be concerned with their babies running around a lion. During that time, the cow and the bear shall graze. The bear will not be trying to eat the cow. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox will not eat other animals. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So Jesus will reign from the headquarters in Jerusalem. That's going to be a blessing. We're going to rule and reign with him again in glorified bodies. There's going to be a knowledge of God worldwide. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And so since Satan will be locked up during that time, anybody who's in their non-glorified bodies, because remember, some people will go into the millennial kingdom and their non-glorified bodies. They're going to have children and some of those children will have children and so forth. Can have a lot of children in a thousand years. And some of them will not have an outside influence to tempt them to sin because Satan's going to be locked up. But, oh, at the end of that thousand year period, as I mentioned earlier, he's going to be released. And so it says he's going to go out and actually deceive some folks. But then, of course, that's going to be the end of him. But when we read about this state of the earth during this time, this restoration of the earth during this thousand year reign of Christ. No wonder creation is eagerly waiting for us to be revealed. For us to look like the way God ultimately designed us to be. And we are awaiting. We are waiting as well. And it says for we in verse 22 back in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And so all creation has been groaning together like a woman as if she's about to have a baby and she's having labor pains, undergoing agony. Creation is going through that up until this point. And what is it eventually going to give birth to? It's going to give birth to that new age, the, the millennial kingdom. 
In verse 23, it says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption, the deliverance of our body from what? From from sin, from our sin nature, from the presence of sin completely. One day we will be delivered from that. And get our new bodies. And so just as creation groans, we groan as well as we wait. And eagerly waiting, that phrase there in verse 23, actually comes from the same Greek word that we found in verse 19 when it says that the creation eagerly waits. We wait with great care attention and perseverance, patience. And so we sigh, we murmur, we we even pray inaudibly with grief as we wait for that final stage of our adoption as sons. So I can only imagine that we have people in here who are groaning right now. They're feeling the pain in their bodies. They're they're going through some type of suffering and heartache and they're groaning within themselves right now. And we all groan. We just can't wait. We have to, but we, we just become so excited at the prospects of, of what we're going to receive in the future. So maybe some of you right now have been groaning more than usual lately. Only thing I can say to you is, look, help is on the way. And every day is closer and closer to Jesus coming back. And we should be excited about that. Yes, there is turmoil and craziness in the world. Evil in the world. Demonic spirits in the world. Things are not going our way in this world. We're hated in this world because we associate ourselves with the Jesus Christ of the scriptures. And so there is persecution and tribulations that we go through. And so we're groaning as we wait, sighing within ourselves. Verse 24 says, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And so that eagerly wait in verse 25, again, uh, the same Greek word that we find in verses 19 and 23. The same Greek word. Waiting with great care, attention. Waiting our change to come waiting with perseverance see when we got saved we obtained this joyful confident expectation of our glorious future that's biblical hope not the worldly kind of hope where it's like well maybe this is going to work out no the hope that it talks about in the bible for believers for people like us who put our faith in christ that type of hope is a confident expectation A joyful expectation of coming good. It's a done deal. It's going to come and we're just waiting. We're expecting it. And we are confident that it's going to come. We're joyful about it. That is the type of hope that we're talking about. 
And in these verses, in verses 24 and 25, we see some aspects of hope. We see one part of hope in that it is currently unseen. Hope right now is currently unseen. Has not been realized yet. Because if we can see it, then it's, it's not hope anymore. It's there. A second aspect of hope is that it is still future. And we learn that from these two verses in 24 and 25. And the third part of our hope is that perseverance, patience, endurance is involved as we hope for what we do not see. Patient endurance. We're waiting without giving up. We're lasting. We're like the Energizer Bunny. For those of you who still remember that bunny, I don't know if they still made the commercials, but we are persevering. In verses 26 and 27, it says, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit helps in our limitations for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. With groanings, in other words, that are too deep for words. They're inexpressible. Now, he who searches the hearts, that's God, the father who searches the hearts. He knows what the mind of the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit makes intercession for the saints. That's all believers, true believers in Christ. We're the saints. And he makes this intercession for us according to the will of God. And we know in this verse, verse 28, many of us have memorized You probably have it written on our mirror somewhere. And it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew who God foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's Jesus, that he might be the firstborn, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I'll break all these terms down for you as quickly as possible. Moreover, whom God predestined, who he chose, in other words, to be like Jesus, these also he called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, I wonder if any of you have ever worked on a jigsaw puzzle. Those old school puzzles you buy from Walmart or somewhere, hundred piece, thousand piece. Now we have it on our apps, on our, uh, on our phones or tablets, folks working on puzzles. And I wonder how hard it would be to put together that puzzle Without having that that picture on the box of the puzzle. Or maybe if you have the app. Maybe they have the, the whole picture of that puzzle in the corner of the screen. So that you know what the puzzle is going to look like in the end. But imagine if it doesn't have that. How difficult would that puzzle be to put together? You see for us it's. 
Of course, that will be a challenge, but it even is still a challenge, even if we see the picture. But as we read the scriptures in its totality, from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, some people say from Genesis all the way through the maps at the back of your Bible, as you, as you read it all, you'll, you'll understand that God has given us a glimpse of the big picture. Whatever he has revealed to us, whatever he had wanted to make known to us, he put it here in regards to that big picture, just like those people do on those boxes of the puzzle. They give us the picture of what things should look like. By the time you're finished working on that puzzle. But the Bible says there's some things God has not revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord. But what he has revealed to us, we're responsible for. And he has revealed a lot in regard to the big picture. Now, if we look at Romans 8, 28. Where it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We get a general big picture of how things are going to work out in the plan of God. And notice that it says all things work together for good. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say only 20% is going to work together for good. And also, it doesn't say that all things that are going to work together for good are going to be good things. Didn't say everything God is going to use to work out in our lives and for our lives are going to be good things. There are going to be some ups and downs, some good times and bad times, some slippery slopes in our lives. But he did say all things work together for good. And so we established that point. Now we need to ask ourselves, to whom does this verse apply? Who is this verse for? Well, first of all, it is to those who love God. And how do we know if we love God? Well, first of all, the scriptures tell us that those who love God loves the brethren. You love the saints. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love the church. You can't claim to be a Christian. Say you love God and talk bad about Jesus' bride. It just won't happen. Just like you can't talk bad about my bride and get away with it. Not that I'm going to fight or anything like that. You probably reported to Pastor Jim, but can you imagine? Do we really understand that when we talk bad about God's people, we're talking about the bride of Christ. And that wasn't in the notes, but praise God. But those of us who love the brethren, 1 John 4, 21, it says in this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must Love his brother also. It's a true believer. Remember, we're trying to find out who verse 828 applies to. First of all, for those who love God and then those who love God, love the brethren. That's again where 1 John 4, 21 comes into play to support that point. 
And then number two, how do we know we love God? We obey his commandments. John 14, 15, this is Jesus. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I mean, there's no other way to explain that. And so first of all, 828, all things will work together for good for those of us who love God, true believers. But also those who are the called according to his purpose, to God's purpose. And this purpose was worked out in eternity, not in time. God didn't back up and accidentally say, oh, I forgot about you. Now you're called. Now you're called according to my purpose. No, this was already decided before you took your first breath, before the first human was ever created, before a universe or earth was ever created. You, if you're a believer today, you are the called according to his purpose, according to his plan. Before you were thought of, you are already in the mind of God. Can we wrap our minds around that? We, we can. And so who are the called in this text? We already established them as believers, but we're going to go more and more into it because uh, verses 29 and 30 tells us a little more about these called people. Verses 29 and 30 says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn. That means that Jesus might be first in rank. He's not a created being. The only thing that was created about Jesus was the body that he took upon him at one point in history. But he always existed. He always was and will be God. But at a certain point in history, yes, he took upon a human body. But firstborn here means he has the preeminence. He's the first in rank among many brethren. That's believers. Moreover, whom God predestined, who he chose to be like Jesus, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So let's start with the word for no. For no means to have knowledge beforehand. Now, this for no means that God knew those whom he had elected or had chosen to salvation. In other words, he foreknew those who would enter a relationship with him through faith in Christ. He knew that beforehand. See, God's foreknowledge of believers, the fact that God knows who's going to believe in him before they do. Remember, he knew that from eternity. What that implies is that not only did he know who would choose him, but it also means that he chose them. For those who use their free will to believe, he chose. If you're a believer today, you're chosen. And then those he chose will eventually believe. He doesn't force them to believe, but he woos them. And his wooing, his grace for for the true believer, my God, it is very persuasive. And so you can attest to that because you're here today, that God's love and his grace was persuasive. He didn't force you to believe. 
He knew that you would believe and he chose you. He elected you, but he drew you. Jesus says, no man can come to me except the father draws him. Jesus says, all that the father gives me, guess what, will come to me. So in that very verse, you see, you see God's part and you see human free will in that verse. All that the father gives to me, the father's part will come to me. That's our part. So what is true? God chooses, God elects or free will. The Bible teaches both. And it says again, those he chose will use their free will to believe. Now, why is that? And I quote from one Bible scholar. He says, he knows what he chooses and he chooses what he knows. See, God's foreknowledge and his actions, his actions, meaning electing or election. They're not going to contradict each other. You see, God's choice and what he foreknows. As far as who's going to come to him, they work together. They don't, they don't contradict each other. And you'll see what I'm talking about in this example here. It says in first Peter chapter one, verses one and two, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now notice this next part. Elect. These believers are elect. According to what? According to the foreknowledge of God, the father in sanctification of the spirit, the spirit sets them apart for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So there you see the Trinity, you see God, the father, you see the spirit sanctifying, and then you see the blood of Jesus being sprinkled grace to you and peace be multiplied. But I want what I wanted you to see is that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That means that he didn't choose you only because he knew you would choose him because then God will be dependent and you would cheapen the grace of God. You see, God knows all things and he knows all things at once. So he chose and knew who would come to him both at the same time because that happened in eternity and eternity is one big now. And so when, when I, when I explain this to people, cause it seems contradictory, we have free will and God chooses. When I explain that to people, I tell people to think of it this way, that they have a parallel relationship. They both happen at the same time. See, God knows who he chooses and he also knows who will choose him both at the same time. And therefore, God's grace is not cheapened. And that way, people are not forced to do something against their will. That all happens in eternity. It's a parallel relationship. Human free will and God choosing. And so all of that is implied in the fact that God foreknows. He knows beforehand who are his. He knows beforehand, of course, who he chose. Now those moving on to the next part of verse 29, 29. Now those who God knew beforehand, those are the ones. We are the ones who are predestined. That's mean that he had determined from eternity to be conformed 
to the image of Jesus. So if God foreknew you from eternity, you are also chosen beforehand to be conformed into an image of Jesus. We're conformed into Jesus's thoughts, his, his words, his actions, and eventually will be conformed to the image of his heavenly body. We won't be gods, but we'll receive uh, spiritual or heavenly bodies when we receive our glorified bodies, meaning that our bodies will be dominated by the spirit, not by the sin nature, not by the flesh. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, same thing. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, that's Jesus, who will receive glorified bodies one day. Now, as we look in verse 30, here is, is where we'll see who the called are. We'll get more, we'll get more details about the called. Because in verse 30, it says, moreover, who he predestined, who God has chosen beforehand to be like Jesus. These are the one he called. Now, in time, he calls us to salvation. Somebody shares the word of God with us and God is using that person to to call us to salvation in time. So those he foreknew, those he predestined to receive a body like Jesus, to receive the character of Christ. Guess what? God is going to ensure that you hear the gospel. That you receive that calling through the word of God and by the spirit of God, whoever God through his spirit is using. And we conclude that in Romans 8, 28, as we read all of, all of this, we conclude that, yes, it is talking about true believers. Not anybody could take this, that all things work together for good. No matter who I worship knows for believers in Christ. But what evidence do we have that guarantees this? That's the next question. How do we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to, to his purpose? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit prays in our behalf. Remember what it told us back in verses 26 and 27. There are times when we are at a loss for words. We don't know what to say. We have that moment of weakness, tough situation to deal with. We groan and moan and sometimes we just sit there and we just rock and we don't know exactly how to pray, what God's will is. And so the Holy Spirit, it says, intercedes, steps in and he prays on our behalf. And the father, the heavenly father who searches the hearts, he knows the mind of the spirit. He understands the groanings that the Holy Spirit is giving out. He understands the groanings that the Holy Spirit is interpreting. The groanings that we don't even understand. And notice that it also tells us in 26 and 27 that the Holy Spirit prays for us according to the will of God. And so we can be, in, we can be sure. We can be sure that in time. Because right now we're in time. We're not in eternity right now. We can be sure that in time, although the situation is bad, 
If we're believers, if we're the called according to his purpose, if we love God, then guess what? The Holy Spirit who prays for us in our moments of weakness when we don't know how to pray, if he's praying according to the will of the Father, how is that going to work out? That's not going to work out bad. That's going to work out together for your good. And the second reason or second piece of evidence that we have that guarantees that all things are going to work together for good is that God sees glorification, which is the final stage of salvation. He sees it as already done. So not only did he foreknow you in eternity, not only did he predestine or choose you beforehand to be conformed to the image of Christ in thoughts, words, action, and even in the glorified body, not only did he call you in time to receive salvation, But here is where your human choice comes in. After receiving salvation, now you receive justification. Notice what it says in Romans 8.30. See that whom he called these, he justified. You're declared righteous now. And those who are declared righteous, that happens now. These he also glorified. Well, wait a minute. Glorification is still future. I haven't received my new glorified body yet. But from God's perspective, it's done. From God's perspective, if you are a believer right now, he's going to carry that salvation through. As Philippians 1, 6 tells us that the good work that God has begun in you, he will, he, that he began in you, he'll finish it until the day of Christ. He's going to complete it. God is not a quitter. That's why I don't believe that the true believer will lose his or her salvation because he carries the salvation process through all the way from eternity to justification all the way through glorification. Notice again, glorified, although it's future tense in the in time that where we are glorified is past tense from God's point of view. It's as good as done. He's going to carry you through. So that's another piece of evidence that we can say, hey, everything in the long run, in the big picture is going to work out for good. From beginning to end, he'll see us through. He'll save us to the uttermost, as it tells us in Hebrews. And so when you think about being conformed into the image of Christ with a body like his, which is the ultimate good that will be worked out for us in Romans 8, 28. When you think about that, then you have a better understanding of what it says in verse 18 at the beginning of our lesson. Because remember, verse 18 in addressing the suffering in verse 17 says this. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. So when we understand the good in the big picture that will be worked out with those glorified bodies, it may us being made into the image of Christ. When we understand that completely and we weigh the sufferings versus the future glory, there is no comparison. And so with the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 8, 18, is he saying, look, you got to keep things in perspective because the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us when we are revealed as God designed us to be glorified. That word worthy means having weight or worth as much. 
So the suffering doesn't work, is not worth as much as the glory that shall be revealed in us as the worship team comes forward. So yes, in Romans 18, 8, 18, it tells us, look, keep this perspective, big picture perspective. It's all going to work out in the end. It's all going to work out for good for the believer, for the true believer. So yes, keep that big picture in mind. But I want you to remember this about the big picture. Listen, we are not the ones who are putting the puzzle together for that big picture. That's not our job. So, yes, we know the ultimate goal. We know the ultimate good. We know where things are headed for us. But in time, we don't always know that. We don't know how our current situations in time are going to work out. How our current sufferings in time, we don't know how they're going to work out. But remember, God is the one who puts the puzzle together. He sees the end from the beginning. And while you're thinking that things are falling into part, are falling apart, while you're thinking that, hey, somebody is taking these puzzle pieces out of my life and nothing makes sense was really happening for the believer is, look, he's really putting the puzzle pieces in the proper place. That's what's really going on. So a question that I have that I want to leave you with is, have you been experimenting with God's pieces? Have you been trying to put the big picture in your current situation together? Some of you, as you're working on these puzzle pieces, you get frustrated if somebody tries to jump in and help you out. You're like, no, I have it. You're going to confuse me. But some of us do God that way. We try to take the pieces and put it where we want it. Or we tell God to, hey, put the piece here. That'll feel good to me. So on our way to glory... As we go through sufferings, ask yourselves, who, who, who's in charge of putting this big picture together, this big puzzle together? Remember that God, God has it. He knows it from eternity, how things are not only going to work out in the end, the point of glorification, our final stage of salvation, but he also knows from eternity how your particular situation, no matter how big or small, he knows exactly how he's going to work it out. Even before you pray, even before you even pray about it, he already knows the answer. He knows what puzzle piece he's going to move and place here and there. And there's some things, some puzzle pieces, some prayers that he's going to answer. Before you even open your mouth. There's some things he's going to do, some puzzle pieces he's going to lay down and piece together without you even praying. Because there's some things that he's going to do regardless of you praying. But then there's some things that he already decided to do. But he wills for you to pray about it. So, yes, that puzzle piece in your situation may be there already. Just 
God is waiting to lay it down. But like I said, some things, he's just, he's just waiting for that open door in prayer. It shows our dependence upon him. So give God more credit than we do. And maybe slap your own hand when you try to touch the puzzle piece. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that, yes, all things work together for good. Lord, we, we know that eternal state. Many of us are familiar with that. But the things that happen in our lives on the way to glory. Lord, we don't always see how good can come from that. So as the one man prayed in the scriptures, Father, help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to stay focused on the big picture understanding that you're going to take care of everything lay everything in proper order as you see fit Lord encourage my brothers and sisters who we love dearly We smile, we shake hands and hugs, and we don't know the whole story. But there is pain, there is suffering behind those smiles. And Lord, I pray that you would intervene, that you would heal, that you would mend. That you would put back together again. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. If anybody needs prayer, I'll be here at the front. And anybody else who wants to join me in praying with people, you can feel free to come up here. And so uh, next week, there won't be any service. So we won't have a service next week. Um, so enjoy your Thanksgiving with your family. We pray for traveling grace for you, for those of you who are leaving town. But continue to keep each other in prayer. And keep the leadership in prayer. We, we appreciate it. And as always, we love you. God bless you. And be safe on the way home.
you would never leave you will always stay right by my side oh right by my side right by my side I need you Yes I need you Every step of the way And I need you Yes I need you Every step of the way I could run I could run away You would never leave You will always stay Right by my side Oh, right by my side Yeah, right by my side I need you Yes, I need you Every step of the way And I need you Yes, I need you Every step of the way Everything I ever wanted I found in you 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 Everything I ever wanted, I found in you. 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 And I need, and I need you. I need you every step of the way and I need and I need you yes I need you every step of the way Amen God bless you guys